Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. I'm taking a break from our study in the book of Ephesians until uh, really uh, in January with the next semester. And for these next two weeks, uh, tonight, next week, we want to turn our attention to the coming of Christ into the world. And so tonight we turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We will consider over the next couple of weeks then the reality that Jesus is God made man, that he added to himself humanity without ceasing his divinity. So that at Christmas we can rejoice on the one hand in Jesus, that he is like us and he gets us and he knows what we're going through. And yet also at Christmas we can actually worship Jesus because he's unlike us. He's God in the flesh. And so the next week we will emphasize his full divinity, but tonight we'll look at his full Humanity. We'll ponder that together from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let me invite you to give your attention then to God's Word. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. From the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your bride. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray tonight that your word would dwell richly in our hearts and in our minds, and that by it you would show us again our Savior Jesus, help us to know him, understand him as he truly is, guard us from thinking wrongly of him, and help us, O God, by your spirit to study your word rightly that we would be better equipped to walk with you and to serve you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We want to consider this passage in three things then in light of the coming of Christ into the world. I want to look with you tonight at his very ordinary yet godly family. Then I want you to think about his extraordinary conception by the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, I want you to consider his true humanity. So his family, his conception, and his humanity. So we ponder these things about Jesus. Beginning back at verse 18, consider this ordinary family. He grew up and was placed into to grow up a a regular yet godly human family. What are we saying by that? Well, the birth of Jesus took place in this way, the writer says. Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, but before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't sound very ordinary at all, and it's, it's not. We'll get to that. But consider Mary and Joseph for a moment. Mary is this young Jewish girl. She's more than likely in her early to at the latest perhaps mid-teens. She's been pledged to marry Joseph. He's likely to be a few years at least older than her. And they've been betrothed. Now that's kind of like our engagement time, but it's actually a little more committed than that. Uh, Engagement in our culture can be breaking without any kind of legal divorce or anything like that. But here... They had actually legally been pledged together even before witnesses as husband and wife, though they had not yet been intimate together in sexual relations. They had not yet begun to live together. She had not come home to his house. There would ordinarily be a time of waiting and celebration and the families would be involved and then eventually she would She would come to live with him and they would consummate the marriage in intimacy. And so the text is explicit here. They had not yet engaged in that kind of intimacy. He did not know her in the Bible's way of saying that yet. And yet then here she is expecting a child. And Joseph rather naturally assumes then that she has been unfaithful to him. And you can only imagine how that would have broken his heart. And so Christmas, as my old pastor put it, almost begins with a divorce. I don't know if you've thought of it that way. Here's a woman Joseph absolutely loves. She's apparently to his eyes been unfaithful to him. And he begins to ponder what to do about this situation. He's decided to quietly divorce her. Notice there in verse 19 some things you see about his, his, the wonderful, beautiful character of Joseph here. We're told that he was a righteous man, but we're also told that he's an unbelievably kind man. Her husband, being a just man, a righteous man, he determines to divorce her. Why? Well, he cares about honoring God's intentions in marriage. He doesn't want to be engaged and then married to a woman who's been in adultery and then thereby himself commit adultery with her and have her involved in, in an adulterous kind of marriage. He, he, he cares about God. He cares about his law. He cares about what's right. And yet he's kind and he's merciful and he, and he loves Mary. And so he doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't seek to punish her in a public way and to expose her her what seems to him to be rather scandalous sin, he determines rather to quietly 
divorce her. And that, that could happen in that day. He could have very publicly divorced her. And adultery, as you remember, in the Old Testament could have been grounds for stoning death by stoning in the community. Now, that, that actually wasn't practiced by the time of Jesus' own day, but there would have been a public humiliation. There would have been a, a likely sort of banishment from the community. Uh, it would have been very ugly and very uh, much a public disgrace for her. And so rather than that, he thinks, I'll, I'll just, I'll gather the lawyers, I'll get the papers quietly, I'll, I'll deliver them to her, I'll, I'll, I'll let us go our own way. And so here you see a man who's, who wants to do the right thing and he wants to do the kind and merciful thing. He, he wanted to do what was right, but in such a way that it wouldn't hurt her. But he didn't want to be so soft as sort of to roll over and refuse to do what was right. There are many who are righteous, but who are not kind. And there are many who are kind who are not righteous. And it's a wonderful thing that the Lord God picked for his son, a man who was so like himself, the Lord God, both righteous and merciful. And we might ask for ourselves, oh Lord, oh men, let's ask the Lord, Lord, make me and make my boys, men who love what is good, love what is right, And love what is merciful. As the Old Testament prophets said, this is what the Lord desires of you, requires of you. That you love justice and that you love loving kindness, mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. And it's it's extraordinary. Joseph is that kind of a man here. And then in verses 20 and 21, you see how God intervenes to rescue Mary from this difficult situation. Uh, God uh, sends the angel to Joseph to tell him in a dream, Joseph, you've thought wrongly about her. This isn't what's happened. Rather, what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. So the angel comes to him and, and rescues Mary. And in a sense, rescues Jesus so that he'd be brought into this loving home. And when the angel comes to Joseph in this, in what potentially could have been a very difficult situation and is going to be a unique challenge. The angel begins by addressing him, son of David. It's a sweet phrase to remind him, Joseph, I know you're a humble man. I know you're just a carpenter. I know you're poor. We know from the Bible that Joseph was a poor man when it came time to make an offering for the baby Jesus. All they could offer was the cheapest offering, the turtle doves. They weren't people of wealth, and yet the angel says, but, but you remember who you are, Joseph. You are the son of David. You are, you are a descendant of the line of the kings. And it's a beautiful way of, of God picking him up and reminding him that even as he calls him to obey and to this, this amazing task of raising the Lord Jesus with Mary, he reminds him first who he is in him. Remember who you are, Joseph. You're the son of David. David was a man after God's own heart, like you. And so Joseph then adopts Jesus into the family and into the Davidic line. This is how Jesus becomes part of, legally heir to, the the Davidic kingship through adoption into the line of Joseph. And so, so God tells Joseph, take her as your wife, name the boy Jesus, 
because he's going to save his people from their sins. And at verse 24, Joseph wakes up from his sleep and he does what the Lord has told him to do. We, we rightly respect, value Mary for saying, yes, Lord, when the angel came to her and said, you're going to bear a son, you're going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. And she says, may it be to me as you have said. We rightly respect that. Just as much Joseph does the same. He believes the Lord. He trusts the Lord. He obeys the Lord. And what a wonderful family. God placed his own son into a normal family in the sense of a, a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad, and, and, and a godly, believing family, but a regular family. And, and I want to say this as we close our thoughts then about this family God put his own son into. It is interesting that God so cared about the ordinary community life of family that that is what he, he placed his own son into. There, there's a sense here in which it's clearly important to God that Jesus grow up in a home with a mom and a dad. In the ordinary circumstance of a home in which there is a mom and a dad, it was the pattern of life God established in the garden from the beginning that the two will come together and be one flesh and then be fruitful and multiply. This is... God's own desire and design, and he then places his own son into it as if to affirm that this is his desire and design. And it's in this family then that Jesus will learn. Jesus will be trained. Jesus will be loved. And he will learn to see firsthand what marriage is. What, what, is, it, what is family life really like? He can see close up. What it means for a man to take a wife and to live with her and to love her. And he can see close up likewise what it means for a woman to take a husband and to live with him and to love him. And he can feel firsthand what it will be like to be a child loved by his parents and yet a child of imperfect parents. Whatever positives it states here about Mary and Joseph. And there is much... To commend them. They are going to be like us. Sinful parents. And Jesus will learn firsthand from the inside experience. What it means for their parents to say I love you. And for parents also to say please forgive me. I have not been what I should be for you. Parents who love him but don't love him as well as God loves him. Jesus is going to have all of that so that he can sympathize with us in the challenges of family life. He can sympathize with the difficulty of imperfect people coming to live together day after day after day. And he can sympathize with adopted children whom the Lord places in families And so in all these various ways and others, he can sympathize with us. He gets us. He understands us. So he's able to help us. He's able to help you, friends, if you're struggling in your marriage. If your heart is hard to your parents. You're just pulling your hair out, parents, and don't know what to do with your kids. He can help you in all these ways. He grew up in an ordinary family. But the second thing I want you to see is this, the extraordinary thing. The extraordinary conception. He was here, verses 22 and 23, very explicitly, 
miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Bible was explicit. It was, it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quoting Isaiah 700 years before, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And it explicitly says that, that the conception was by means of the Spirit of God. And so we want to consider then, briefly, the, the conception of our Lord and the virgin birth. The, the incarnation of Christ means his enfleshment. He, he took human flesh. That's what we mean by it. The eternal Son of God added to himself humanity without ceasing his divinity. And he did it by means of the Holy Spirit supernaturally and miraculously in ways we can't fully understand and are not described. This Spirit caused there to be in the Virgin Mary's womb a living, growing, fertilized egg with all the normal characteristics of a human person, yet without the contribution of a human father, and yet without sin. Mary contributed to Jesus 23 chromosomes from her egg. He is of her substance. But the other 23 chromosomes, the Y chromosomes, were presumably, a bit speculatively, created miraculously. He certainly didn't get them from Joseph. He didn't, he didn't get them from any male any human man. And so in some supernatural miraculous activity of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, this child is conceived and the deity, deity is united to the humanity in one person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Mary is a virgin. Matthew and Luke both tell us that. And I want to say a few things about that. And I want to say to those who are skeptical about this very idea, I want to say a few things. One is to say this, by Virgin Mary, this does not mean that married sexual relations are somehow bad or wrong, as some in the history of the church have taught and believed. This is not a comment on how being abstinent is better. It's certainly not a comment in any way saying abstinence in marriage is in any way better. In fact, the Bible frowns on that and says, come together, husband and wife. And this is not a passage either in, in, in which we are to believe that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life in some sort of perpetual virginity as some have taught. Uh, verse 25, I think the very natural sense of the until when it, when it says that he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. The, the natural sense of that seems to be that they lived a very normal married life after Jesus was born. Contrary to the Roman Catholic doctrine of perpetual, perpetual virginity. The, the natural sense of, her, of, of him being called her firstborn in the book of Luke, is that Mary had other children. And the brothers we learn about in variety of places, including Matthew 12, 46, indicates that, that she had other children by Joseph, presumably. And, and so these were then half-brothers and half-sisters. And so she did not remain in this state. This was a one-time deal. Now, now, how can we believe in a virgin birth? You're still asking that question. Maybe you're in this room and you're a bit skeptical about this. It just seems absolutely impossible to believe. And, and, and I want you to know, on the one hand, we're glad that you're here. 
We want to take your questions seriously. We'd love to dialogue with you about these things. But our culture just scoffs at such a notion. So how can we believe in a virgin birth? Well, let me say a few things about that. One is, that's the point of the biblical miracle. It is to startle you with something unexplainable, naturally. There's a story told about C.S. Lewis that when he was in his office in England, he had his window open at Christmas time and there were some carolers who had come by to sing some of the Christmas songs and a, a, a friend walked into the office who was a bit of a skeptic about Christianity and overheard in the caroling them singing of the virgin birth. And, and this skeptical friend said to C.S. Lewis, isn't it good we now know better than they did? And, and Lewis said, what, what do you mean? Well, it, isn't it good that we know more than they did? Meaning more about conception, of course, but Lewis says, I'm afraid you're going to have to explain what you mean. Well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? And C.S. Lewis looked at him rather incredulously, of course, and said, don't you think they knew that? That's the whole point. This isn't a mystery, folks. Christians believe knowing it's a miracle. No less a miracle than the resurrection of our Lord upon his death. Christianity is filled with the miraculous and the supernatural that can only be explained by the intervention of God in this world in a particular way, contrary to everything we know. That's the point. Jesus goes out in a resurrected body, ascending to heaven in a miraculous way. Jesus comes into this world by conception by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. Some critics have looked at the passages, however, and said this. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Matthew and Luke are the only two accounts we have of the virgin birth. Mark doesn't mention it explicitly and neither does John. And therefore they will say, Matthew and Luke just made it up. I mean, nobody else wrote about this. But, but friends, what would we say in response to that? How about this? Simply because the virgin birth is not directly and explicitly talked about anywhere else in the New Testament but Matthew and Luke. And therefore we're not going to believe it. I mean, imagine saying that. Well, then you would have to not believe a whole lot of other things about Jesus that are not in other places explicitly said about him. Matthew and Luke are the only two gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus, of his coming into the world, of his being laid in a manger of wise men coming to visit him, of shepherds coming to visit him, and a a whole host of other things. These are the only two birth narratives we have in the Gospels. That doesn't mean they're unbelievable. It's just these were the only two writers writing about this subject. Some critics, however, will say this. You've you've entirely missed it. You've misunderstood the Bible here. People will say, uh, look, What we know is that the prophecy quoted about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 does not refer explicitly to a virgin. And the Bible has been misunderstood, it's been mistranslated, Christians uh, sort of misunderstood it and then imported that back into the New Testament, made up this idea that the Bible never actually talked about. It was never even prophesied. 
And the reason they will say that is because in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the passage quoted here, in the Hebrew, the word Alma can mean, the word being used for virgin, can mean young maiden. And then be translated, a young maiden will conceive. And I have two responses then to that, that that's then been brought forward in a misunderstood way, made to say Jesus is a virgin when he's, when, or that Jesus was born of a virgin when Mary wasn't, she was just a young maiden, probably sexually promiscuous. Okay, a couple of responses. One is this, while the Hebrew can mean young maiden, the presumption is in an ancient Jewish society, a young maiden is a virgin. But more than that, more directly than that, my second response is this. 250 years before Jesus, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And the writers who translated it chose the Greek word for virgin when they translated Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And they used the Greek word then in the Old Testament which is picked up then by the New Testament writers and quoted using the very explicit word for virgin here to say this was fulfilled prophecy. In other words, nobody made this up out of whole cloth. Nobody misinterpreted the Bible here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It was understood to be a virgin. And in the New Testament, it was written that way. The Bible is explicit. The Greek of the New Testament is not ambiguous. So this is some of what we would say, friends. If you find this whole idea to be either troubling because of what you think the Bible teaches rightly or wrongly or, or what you think is possible in a world that God has made or not possible, these are some of the things we would say. The, the virgin birth is basic to Christianity. It's vital to your understanding of who Jesus is and how he came into the world. In him, deity and humanity unite, even at the very beginning. And so you see his ordinary family, and you see this extraordinary conception. And then in the last place, I want you to see this then. His true humanity. We want to be explicit about this. Jesus was then fully human and like us yet without sin. We'll speak more of his divinity next week. But you know, that idea has been challenged throughout the history of the church, especially in the early years that Jesus was fully human. There were people around who rejected the idea that Jesus was fully man. Some of them were called docetists from the Greek word for to seem. Okay? In other words, that what they were saying was it only seemed like Jesus was a human, but he really wasn't. I mean, how could God become a human being or add humanity to himself? In fact, there's kind of a worldview behind that. If you remember any of your Greek philosophy, some of these folks thought that, you know, that matter, the stuff of earth is evil, whereas the spiritual is good or the immaterial is good. And so they couldn't conceive of a, of a God who was spiritual and immaterial without a body, uniting to the physical, because that would be uniting good to evil. 
in their estimation. And so people who held that view therefore had to escape the idea of the humanity of Jesus. And they did so by saying Jesus was, was more like a ghost. Uh, he, he was more like uh, a phantasm. He only appeared to be a human being, but he wasn't really a human being. But the Bible here and throughout is explicit that Jesus was a human being just like us in every way and yet without sin. In other words, let me just walk you through this. He was a human being. He had a human body. Miraculously, from the 23 chromosomes of Mary, by the power and overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, he was formed. And he was attached to the uterus and he grew in the womb and he became a child and an adolescent and an adult man, a fully grown human being with all the same physiology and biochemistry and central nervous system and DNA of of a human being. One of the ways that helps you, friends, is it reminds you that he knows what it's like to be finite in a body, to be constricted to being only in one place at one time in accordance with his humanity and to know then the limitations of 24 hours in a day, only seven days in a week. I've only got so much time to do the work that God has called me to do each day and I am limited in doing it by human weakness, hunger, thirst, tiredness, the need for sleep, the lack of mobility because I walk on two legs. He had a real human body. He understands you. He also had a real human mind. His human mind was limited and finite. It had to gather and store and organize information. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He accumulated an ever-increasing measure of common sense. That doesn't mean, don't misunderstand, that he was in any way fallible. He was not ignorant of anything he ought to have known. He never believed anything that wasn't true. But there were things in his capacity as the mediator, in accordance with his human nature, that he did not know. And he confessed it freely in Mark 13. When with regard to the second coming, he said concerning that day or that hour... No one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. It seems evident, friends, that in accordance with his human mind, he was limited and finite, and yet he had access to extraordinary knowledge. We might even say miraculous knowledge of things and events which otherwise he wouldn't have any other way of knowing. He he knew that Lazarus was dead before he got to Bethany. He knew there was a, a coin in the mouth of a fish from which he could pay the, the, the tax to the government. Uh, he knew that at the time of the Passover, his disciples would go into the city and meet a man carrying a jar of water who would take them to where the Passover meal would be served. He, he knew extraordinary things at times. But that doesn't mean that in his human mind he had infinite knowledge. And he had, so he had a human body, he had a human mind, and he had human emotions. Calvin says of Jesus that he put on our feelings along with our flesh. He knew sorrow, 
He wept at the grave of his dear friend Lazarus. He knew grief and he also knew joy. He knew the need for the company, even the human affection of friends. And so he called 12 disciples to be with him and he had a circle of three within the 12 who were especially dear. And even one, John, the disciple whom he... Uh, who Jesus loved appears to have been the most intimate friend. He had a need for this because he was truly human and he had a human will. He had the faculty of choice, the ability to make decisions and to choose things. That's part of what it means to be a human. He had a divine will and a human will united in one person so that he could say things like, in speaking to God, yet not my will, but your will be done. And he could be tempted by sin. Like an ordinary human being, he could be tempted by sin. Now, in one sense, it was impossible for Jesus to sin. And yet, the devil tempted him. Tempted him in his humanity after 40 days of fasting tried to get Jesus to deny the provision of God the Father and to do an extraordinary work of feeding himself by turning the rocks into bread because he was hungry, in tempting him then to utilize his divine nature on behalf of his human nature and need. But he did not yield to temptation. He did not yield And I want to say, how does that help you? Well, in one sense, it helps you at least understand the Lord Jesus and his ability to help you in your temptations. Because the fact that he never failed doesn't make his temptations any less powerful, but more powerful. When you and I fail in our temptation, we have not yet arrived at the end point of the strength of the temptation because we gave in. We haven't had the full blast of the satanic power of temptation enticing us to rebellion because we long ago gave in. But Jesus took temptation out to its fullest strength and denied it all the way. We might say like a champion weightlifter who lifts the weight above his head and holds more weight than any other's. That's why he's the champion, and therefore he feels the full force of the weight in a way that nobody else does who dropped it. Every temptation Jesus faced, he faced to the end and triumphed over it. But that means there is no temptation that you've experienced that he is unable to understand, comprehend, and help you with. He knows that temptation more than you do, and he was sinless in it. He was very different than us. Jesus was sinless. It does not mean that he was something more than human. Adam and Eve were originally designed sinless and created sinless. That we are sinful does mean we are something less than human as originally designed. We're fallen and we're twisted and we're marred in a way that he was not. But he was sinless. And so the virgin birth, friends, is really important. It's important for a variety of reasons, but it's important so that he can save us. And his humanity, his full humanity, united to a full divinity and sinless, is all important for us to be saved. Because you and I need someone who's divine 
and someone who's human and someone who is sinless to save us. We need a human savior, someone who can stand in our place as a true human being, represent us before God and take the punishment due to us for sin. And if Jesus had not become a man, he could not be what the Apostle Paul calls the the last Adam. He couldn't represent us. He couldn't fulfill the law on our behalf. He couldn't take the punishment that humans deserve for human sin. But he became one of us, and so he could do that. But more than that, we needed a sinless human to do it for us. We can't have a human who's in the same predicament as us. You know, who's who's uh, in the same boat that we are and needs himself to be rescued. He needs to himself be sinless. And more than just a sinless human, we need, we need also a divine savior because there are billions of us and billions and billions of sins which need to be forgiven, need to be pardoned, and for God to be just, need to be punished. And so he needs to bear up under the weight of judgment as a true human being and not in the midst of it sin by unbelief and distrust and anger and hatred to God, but he needs to bear up under the weight of it by the glory of his eternal divine nature. Our Savior needs to be divine and human and sinless, and he was all these things for us because God became a man to save us and he became a man and this is the last thing he became a man to save us but he also became a man because of our sorrows to sympathize with us yeah, I spoke to a friend this week we had a meal together and he was telling me how how deeply betrayed he feels by people he has loved and prayed for and cared for who have now turned their backs on him. And he, he, he just is really, he's hurt, he's frustrated, he's disappointed. And because we had a long conversation, we had earlier spoken of the Lord's Supper and the experience of Jesus meeting with his disciples in that context, I then reminded him of when Jesus had his last meal with his disciples. And soon after that meal, they all left him. They deserted him in his hour of greatest need. And what I said to him is, Jesus gets you. He knows exactly what you're going through. He has, in fact, called you to be more like himself in your experience. Jesus knows what it's like to be hurt by fellow human beings. And so he can sympathize with us. And as we consider the horror of what went on in Connecticut, friends, and the horror that goes on in this world every day. You need to know that your Savior has tasted the worst miseries of this world, the worst betrayals from human people, the hardest miseries Satan could throw at him, and the hardest miseries of the just judgment of God brought to bear upon him. And so he gets our agony. He gets our sorrow. Don't ever imagine he doesn't understand you. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death as a real human being. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we bless you that you spared not your own son. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming and loving us and saving us. Do that, we pray. In your name we ask it. Amen.